Welcome to Speak a Dogcast. My name is David Farb, Animal Behavior Specialist, and I am broadcasting from WOUF Studios in beautiful Palm City, Florida. Thank you once again for joining me. If you haven't clicked subscribe or follow, go ahead and do so right now. I do come out with new episodes every single Wednesday morning, and you're going to want to check them out. Don't forget, you can also follow me on Instagram at Speak a Dogcast excellent show that we have lined up today. The first segment is going to be why and how you should walk your dog. Yes, guys, it's the most important part of training your dog, creating a good quality walk. There is a right and a wrong way to do it. Make sure you do it the right way. We're going to talk about the hows and whys of that. Then we're going to have a segment called Behind the Scenes, Training Animals for TV and Film. I'm going to go into some of the secrets, maybe, or maybe not so secrets, about how we train animals for TV and film, a little bit about my experience working a little in that industry, so kind of some cool stuff going on there. Then we'll have the Breed of the Week, followed by our listener Q&A. If you guys have any questions about dogs, about dog training, animals, you name it, throw it at me. Email me questions at speakadogcast.com. Keep them coming. I love it. So uh, before we get started with the show, though, I have to give you that trivia question of the day. Today's trivia question is, what is the largest bird in the world? Yes, what is the largest bird in the world? I'll give you the answer to that question somewhere in today's show, so be sure you stick around. Sit, stay, and enjoy the podcast. Next on Speak Dogcast, why and how you should walk your dog. Now, this is probably the one topic I hone in on the most on this podcast, walking your dog. And really, guys, the reason why is because it's the most important. It really is by far everything else. Everything else doesn't matter compared to the walk when it comes to training and working with your dog. Even if you've listened to a segment on my walks before, it's a great review. You know, everybody needs a refresher course. Believe me, I know. I spend a lot of times, <laughs> on no offense to my clients, I spend a lot of times at my appointments. And look, I've been doing this a long time now. I have, and it's become second nature to me, and I make it look really easy. And the walk, while it is easy, it's not. It's, it's really not, you know, because it sort of goes against everything we've been taught uh, what the walk is, you know, my, my version, excuse me, the real version of what a walk is, uh, goes against what the norm of the walk is. And that's part of the problem. So it's not the easiest thing to master, but it's the most important thing that you have to master. So even if you've listened to a segment on walks before, have a re-listen, have a review. It's always good because like I said, the walk is the most important, the most important part of training and working with your dog. Okay. Um, Look, I, I say it at the end of every podcast, get out there and walk your dog, right? Get out there and walk your dog. And especially for us Floridians, guys, it's cooling off. There's no more excuses. Get out there and walk your dog. Uh, we have to, we have to, we have to. So let's start with the beginning. We're going to go back to the beginning, uh, the beginning of the dog. What is a dog? I love that question. It's my favorite question. What is a dog? It's a domesticated wolf. There's the answer. I'll give it to you. <laughs> Dogs are domesticated wolves, guys. We all know it, but we kind of forget that fact. We do. We forget it. We see the snuggly, cuddly cuteness, and we forget that it's a domesticated wolf. And we always need to fulfill the most basic instinctual needs of animals, including ourselves, right? At the end of the day, if we want to make animals happy and feel fulfilled, we have to fulfill their basic instinctual needs. And Wolves are pack migratory animals, right? They get up, they go for a walk, 
It's in their nature too. It's a bonding experience for the pack. It's how they survive. It's how they find food, shelter, safety, right? So we can't, we can't ever extract that out of their brains. At the end of the day, they're still a domesticated wolf. And that instinctual need for the walk is always going to be there. Doesn't matter the breed. Doesn't matter the size. It doesn't matter what kind of dog your dog is. Every single dog on this planet needs a daily proper walk. How long that walk is, we'll get to that later. Um, <laughs> okay, but every dog needs a walk, okay? You just, you can't, play time in the backyard, playing with a tennis ball, swim time, tug of war, dog park time, that's the favorite one to use as a, uh, you know, as well, he goes to the dog park. No, no, it's not an exchange here, guys. <laughs> the dog park, the playtime, the tennis ball, the tug of war, the backyard, the swimming, all of that stuff is wonderful, but it's supplemental. It's supplemental to the walk, okay? You need to start thinking of all of those things, the, 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 the playtime, all that stuff. You need to start thinking of that as like recess. It's awesome. It's great. It's great fun for them, and it's great for them to get out some physical energy. And I want my dog to be fun. I want them to have fun. I want my kid to have fun. If I had kids, right? I want them to go to recess. But the walk is math in science class, right? That's what it is. You have to have math in science class too. You can't just have an all-day recess and expect your kid to come home and have learned anything, right? It's no different with your dog. I can't expect them to just have all-day recess and then not, you know, and, I mean, and then be trained. That's just not going to work. It's not going to work. And you know something, no offense to a lot of these doggy day camp facilities out there, but that's what they are. They're all day recess. There's no structure. There's no rules. There's no boundaries. There's no walks. Go call. I, I, I challenge you. Go call um, a bunch of facilities. Go call three or four doggy day camp facilities in your area and ask if they walk the dogs. And they'll go, oh, of course we do. We let them use the bathroom. We let them pee and poo. No, 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 no a walk. Do you walk the dogs? Do you take them for an hour long mental, physical walk? And I can guarantee you without certain, without, without a doubt that at least 95% of the places you call will tell you no, because it's all day recess. That's not going to give your dog enough of what they need. That's not going to give them their instinctual fulfillment, guys. Okay, so I hound on it, I hound on it, I hound on it. Yes, oh, hound on it, I do, <laughs> because it's that important. If you work on commands and you put structure to your dog leaving the crate and entering the crate and you make your dog sit and wait for their food and you do all these wonderful things but you're not walking your dog, then all of those wonderful things are irrelevant. Truth time here, guys, truth time. Yes, it's irrelevant if you're not walking your dog. Okay. I say it a lot. Of, I, I say it a lot. If you can't dribble a basketball, you won't be in the NBA. If you can't walk your dog properly, then you won't train your dog. Forget it. You know? Um, okay. So that's the how that's the important stuff. I'll get off my soapbox and stop the lecturing stuff. Um, <laughs> but it's so true. It's so true. So you have to walk your dog. Okay. How do we walk our dogs? Right? How do we do it? The first thing we need to do is make sure we have the right tools. You need to have your treat pouch. You need to have your poop bags. You need to have your six foot nylon leather, uh, whatever kind of leash you want, as long as it's a regular six foot leash, no stretchy material, nothing crazy, regular six foot leash and a martingale collar. Okay. Martingale collar is where we're going to start. 
All right. Um, if we have those things, then we're ready to go. Now, when we start our walk, and this is something I, I share with all my clients, how you walk out that front door is going to be very important, right? It's going to set the tone for how that walk's going to go. So simply put, if you let the dog pull you out the door and down the sidewalk and down your driveway, you're setting the tone for it. Your dog can just pull you all the way on the walk. Whereas if we start the walk controlled, I have a sit, I have a stay, I have focus from my dog, then we choose to walk out. And when I do walk out, the dog waits for me to shut the door, isn't trying to pull me. That sets the tone for the walk very differently, does it? Doesn't it? Right? So think about that. When you go to walk out that door, take your time, slow it down, open and shut the door a few times, making sure your dog will sit and stay. Create focus first. Okay? Look, when we're training our dogs, the first thing you should be worried about, no matter what's going on, if you're out on the walk, if you're inside, the first thing you should be concerned about with your dog is where is their focus and do I have the ability to control it, guide and direct it, right? If you can answer, if you know where their focus is and you have the ability to control it, nothing else will matter. You'll be able to get your dog to do whatever you need them to do. Sit, stay, lie down, drop it, leave it, whatever. But if you don't have control of that focus, if you don't have the ability to guide and direct that focus, then forget it. You know, to me, again, not a child psychology podcast, <laughs> but to me, it's no different with children. Um, you, you can't expect a child who doesn't know how to focus, you can't expect them to be the straight A student then. If the child hasn't been taught how to focus and how to learn, how to study, how, how to be able to learn, how do you expect them to learn well? I mean, seriously. So the dog, it's no different. If there is one thing I wish people spent more time on besides the walk, <laughs> and the walk is one way we can get the focus, but if there's one thing I wish people would spend more time on, it's getting focus from their dog. And here's the secret of it, guys. Here's how we do it, right? So this is, this is while it's, it's related to the walk, it's not going to be, you don't have to do this while you're on the walk. I want you, here, here's, here's the secret, here's the homework assignment, here's what you have to do to gain focus from your dog. Every now and then when you're inside your house, you're going to go, Fluffy, call their name. Their dog's name is Fluffy for the example. It's my favorite name to use. Fluffy. <laughs> the dog looks at you and you give them a treat. Good, Fluffy. Good boy. Then you're going to do it again. Once the dog looks away from you and starts ignoring you, Fluffy, they look at you. Good boy. Give them a treat. Now, if they're looking at your hand, if they're looking at the treat pouch, if they're looking at the treat container and not at you, I don't really want to reward that. Here's what we're going to do for that. You're going to take the treat and you're going to put it under your chin. And that way the dog starts creating eye contact with you. And you're going to say, good, good boy. Is they're making that eye contact? Then you're going to feed them. So if we need to, it's going to be fluffy, treat under the chin, get the eye contact. Good boy. Bridge that eye contact with the good boy and then feed them. Good boy. Okay. Something as simple as doing this over and over and over for two weeks in your house randomly throughout the day, a handful of times, if each member of your family can randomly call your dog when they're not paying attention to you, when they're off in the other room, and you can randomly start creating this, you're teaching your dog that no matter what's happening, no matter what's going on, I want you to guide and direct your focus toward me, toward the owner. Look at me, look at the person making the kissing noise and calling your name, no matter what the circumstances. And if you start reinforcing it every now and then intermittently, like I said, throughout the day for two weeks, you'll be shocked when you're out on that leash or before you even walk out of the house, 
right? You're leashed up. You're going to open the door. Let's go back to that. Going to open the door. And I can tell my dog's just not quite focused in. I can go, hey. And before you know it, your dog's going to look up at you and sit down and relax and wait for that treat. How awesome is that? They're going to look at you and go, oh, what do you, what do you need me to do? What can I do to get the treat? You have to create that focus, though, in order to be able to regain it when you need it. So again, guys, the secret to the walk starts with having focus from your dog well before you start the walk. If you can't regain focus inside your house with your dog under most any circumstance, then unfortunately, it's probably not going to go so well once you're out on the walk, right? So keep that in mind. You need to start with focus. Start with creating, reinforcing, and strengthening focus well before you're out on the walk with your dog. Look, I've said it before that if I could really only give, you know, two pieces of advice for training any animal on this planet, right, dog, cat, bird, if I really could only give you two things, two tips, the first one would be own it. Own it. Act like you've done it a thousand times. Confidence. Own it. The second thing, know where the animal's focus is and have the ability to guide and direct it. Might reiterate this point a few more times because guys, the walk is all about being able to have their focus, okay? Look, a prime example, and I'm not picking on any client in particular, guys, anybody out there that works with me, it's, it's training, it's work, it's in progress, it's getting them to try to get better, and the clients do get better, but when they start, they can't exactly repl- replicate the same results, you know, by session one. Those that can, I'm blown away with, and they don't need me for very long. Um, <laughs> and that's awesome. That's my goal. I want to I wanna get out of there. I want to empower clients and give them the tools that they need so they don't need me. Uh, they don't need to put a guest house on their house and have me live there with them, right? <laughs> I've been invited a few times, believe it or not. Um, so, you know, it, it's, it's, it's all about, it's, all about the ability to guide and direct focus. I'm going to say it a few more times. Okay. So we let's say we've been working on the focus. We're at the front door. I'm going to ask for a sit and stay. My dog's going to be watching me. I can open the door. I can close the door. They don't care. It doesn't matter because they're focused on me and they're nice and relaxed. That tells me we're ready to go for a walk. Now, I apologize if you hear some breathing and maybe some dreaming in the background. Captain Nemo is joining me once again for my recording, and he's asleep over here dreaming. So <laughs> if you hear some dog noises in the background, that's what's going on. Um, anyway, <laughs> getting back to it. Um, like I said, we have the focus. We have a nice, relaxed dog. We're ready to walk out the front door. Now, guys, if you walk out the front door and you immediately lose that focus, guess what you can do? Turn around, walk right back inside the house and hit the reset button. Start over. When we're moving forward in training and trying to progress in training, but we hit a wall and all of a sudden we're not progressing anymore, go back to the last place you had success, behavioral success with your dog, regain that success a few more times, then try to move forward again. Okay. But if you find your dog is pulling, the last thing you want to do is let your dog keep pulling. By definition, all you're doing is reinforcing and strengthening that behavior, okay? So if you want to fix your walks, guys, it starts before the walk and right at the beginning of the walk. That's going to set the tone, and if you don't set the tone properly, then I hate to say it, you're kind of just going to be shooting yourself in the foot, you know? Um, I see it too often. I see it way too often where people let their dogs keep pulling them. They're trying to correct it. They're trying to stop it, but instead of literally just stopping, turning around and walking the other way and not letting their dog pull, they keep battling with them and fighting them. And meanwhile, they're, they're, they're still moving forward and the dog is getting exactly what it wants, 
So the dog's going, oh, 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 all I have to do is pull you and battle you and fight you and we keep going where I want to go. Sweet. Guess what I'm going to keep doing? Pulling, biting, and you know, battling you. <laughs> okay. So again, think about whatever behavior you're strengthening right now. Look, if a behavior stays the same or increases, by definition, it's being reinforced. So if you're battling Fluffy and Fluffy doesn't stop battling you, guess what? That behavior is being strengthened. You're strengthening the behavior of that your dog, of Fluffy, battling you. All right. It's all what you strengthen and reinforce, and it's all what you don't. So again, if I, think about that, guys. Think seriously. Like, think about that. Any behavior doesn't matter what it is. Any behavior, if it stays the same or increases, by definition, it is being reinforced. Whether you are actively or passively doing something, it doesn't matter. If a dog keeps doing something that you don't want them to do, it's being reinforced, whether you like it or not. Okay, so there's just think about that. So don't let your dog keep pulling you. Instead, turn around, hit reset, go back to the last place you got success, try to regain focus, maybe a sit, stay, reward it, strengthen that focus for a minute, then try to move forward again. Okay, very, very important detail. Most people don't spend enough time at the beginning. You know what I hear a lot? It is, <laughs> they go, well, you know, Fluffy's, it, it's a battle with Fluffy the first half of the walk. But by the second half, he's good. And he, for the most part, stays with me. You know why? Because Fluffy's now tired from battling you the first half of the walk. <laughs> That's the only reason Fluffy backs down is because they're exhausted. That's not what we want. We don't want to battle our dogs. We don't want to fight our dogs. But if you reinforce and strengthen that that's what gets Fluffy what they want, then that's what Fluffy's going to do, battle you, okay? It's that simple. It's re- it really is. It's that simplistic, okay? It's all whatever you let go, whatever behavior you let happen, whatever behavior you let reinforce and strengthen, okay? Um, so that's where it starts. Spend more time at your front door, spend more time strengthening that focus, and spend more time getting down your driveway. Once you're down your driveway, spend more time in front of your house. Now, I do these physical redirections, these physical turns with the dog uh, that helps me regain focus. And again, I I can't really go into too much detail on a podcast about this um, because it's kind of hard to explain without the visual. So, you know, I do this with my my virtual clients. I actually will send video clips and, and show how to do the turns and everything. And it makes it a lot easier. But suffice it to say, they are form a, a form of physical redirection to help us regain focus with our dog, okay? And these forms of physical redirection are like, a to me, it's like playing a video game. It's the reset button. I can turn and walk away from something as many times as I need to and try to regain focus, then turn around and reintroduce again. And the point is, like, if I have a dog reacting, right? If I have a dog reacting at a dog coming toward us, a person coming toward us, a squirrel, a bike, whatever... I can use a redirection to redirect the dog away, regain focus, and then try to turn around and reintroduce. If they start losing their mind, guess what? Turn and walk away. And what I'm showing this dog is very simply put, the more you react, the further away we go from that thing you want to go toward. The more you relax and calm down, the closer we get toward it. Okay. And if you make those you know, if you make it very black and white, those variables very black and white for your dog, hey, here's the consequence. You don't you don't get to go say hi to your friend you're excited about over there. As a matter of fact, we get further away from them the more you lose your mind. There's there's the consequence, right? You don't get to go say hi. It, it, think about it like a little kid. Look, this is just me personally, but if I had a child and we're walking toward the playground and the kid is yanking on me, going, I want to go to the playground, let's go to the playground, rah, 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 throw in a tantrum, 
the last thing I am going to do is go to the playground with my kid. I'd be like, uh, yeah, you need to stop tantruming, right? <laughs> say it differently than that. <laughs> Maybe in my head, that's what I'd be thinking. Um, you need to stop tantruming, uh, right? So if I lay down that consequence of, hey, kid, you know, here's the deal. If you keep, if you keep tantruming, we're leaving. If you stop tantruming, we go to the playground. It's no different. If you're out on the walk and your dog is jumping and getting excited and barking because they're overexcited and oh, how adorable, the dog's overexcited. It's not adorable, guys. It's the equivalent of a spoiled brat kid yanking and demanding and screaming at their at their parent that they want to go, they want to go. It's not cute. Um, it looks cute because it's a fluffy dog, but it's not cute. Okay, so think of it like that. Do I want to reward this behavior and keep giving them what they want? Or should I redirect this, provide some form of consequence or punishment by not letting them say hi until they relax or calm down? We can go further than that with redirections, but that's the simplistic way to put it, right? If you want to better your walk, you have to think about what you're reinforcing, what you're strengthening. Do I want to strengthen my dog pulling me? No, I should probably turn and walk the other way. Is he starting to pull me again? I'm going to turn and walk the other way again. Is he starting to pull me again? That's the basic, <laughs> basic level of what these physical turns and redirections are, okay? Providing a boundary and a rule that says, you're not allowed to pull me. And then once you stop pulling, we keep going. And then we can create a nice, smooth, calm, relaxed walk. A walk should feel like your dog is not even there. That's really what the walk should feel like. Should be a nice, loose, short, but loose leash relaxed arms, relaxed shoulders. And when you walk, it should almost feel like as if you're not even holding a leash and your dog should just be right there next to you, trotting along, relaxed tail, relaxed ears, good pace going. They're not sniffing on, uh, you know, not sniffing everything. They're not trying to pee on everything every five feet. They're on an, on an engaged walk with you. That's what it should feel like. And I got news for you guys. You want to tweak your walk? You want to make it better? It starts at home. It starts before you leave for the walk and it starts with creating focus well before you're even outside, okay? Um, so really think about those things because that's what you need to hone in on more than anything. I know we didn't even talk a ton about getting out of the walk because it starts well before it. And if you don't have that before stuff taken care of, the after will never come with it, okay? Hone in on your focus, hone in on not letting your dog pull you out the door, not letting you pull down the driveway. Start at home. Look, if you have to spend 30 minutes for the first week only going in and out the front door and down your driveway and back and redirecting that focus and trying to control it and reward and strengthen with treats when they are focused on you, if that's what you have to do for a little while, do it. Because you're mentally engaging your dog and that's really what we're after with the walk. Don't forget guys, walks are 85% mental and only 15% physical. Get your dog engaged on that walk, create good focus, and you'll be on a better way to have a happier and healthier walk with your dog. Are you tired of your dog barking all the time? Or maybe you want them to stop jumping on people when they come over. Or does your dog take you for a walk instead of the other way around? We can help. At The Nature of Training, we are committed to improving the relationships and lives people have with their pets. No matter what behavioral issue you are experiencing, from an unruly puppy to more severe issues, we can help. Offering a wide variety of services such as in-home training, doggy and puppy boot camps, doggy day camps, boarding, and now offering virtual training as well. For more information, check out our website, www.thenatureoftraining.com, or you can find us on Facebook or Instagram at David Paws. 
Located in beautiful Palm City, Florida, serving all of the Treasure Coast and North Palm Beach County. The nature of training, helping you achieve success with your pet. Next up on Speak a Dogcast, Behind the Scenes, training animals for TV and film. Now, quite a few years ago, I used to work for an animal training production company, uh, and they trained a lot of animals for TV and film. When I was there, there was really very little production work going on. You know, we were actually still coming out of the recession, and quite frankly, you know, Hollywood was not concerned with trying to add an animal into their shot and add an extra cost. You know, it was all about the bottom line and trying to keep things uh, on a slim budget back when I was there. So there was really just not a ton of production work going on. Uh, Now, of course, that's picked up and that's phenomenal. But besides production work, besides the Hollywood, besides the movie and TV side, they also had an amazing, you know, still have an amazing animal show, right? And at the animal show, you know, there was a wide variety of animal species to work with. And they're, they're training a lot of the behaviors that you'll see in movies and TV and film with all these different animals. And it's really cool. And you gain a lot of experience and knowledge and working in a place like that. There's, there's, you know, there's a lot going on there. So when I talk to people and when I talk to people about, about movies and TV and film and animal training, most of the time people think there's a lot of movie magic going on. And while yes, that's true, you know, when, look, when you see anything on TV, even on YouTube, look, even in the podcast, you can cut and edit. And I mean, that's the reality of it, right? If it's pre-recorded, And so, of course, there's always that, that element of movie magic. But when it comes to actually training the animals and getting them to do the behaviors that they do and, and you know, do all these amazing things, it's really anything but magic, quite frankly. It is. You know, I love it because when it comes down to it, you know, when it comes down to it, it's all about the basic principles of psychology, right? It's all about how the basic principles of psychology and how animals learn. The magic to training animals for TV and film, I'll I'll let you in on this, okay? (laughs) I'll let you in on this. There is is something magical about it. You ready for it? You ready for how how you train, what the magic behind training animals for TV and film is? You ready? It's food and affection. That's it. Really is. Food and affection. Food works for every animal on this planet. Affection, some animals better than others, right? Uh, you know, like I've talked about on this podcast before, that we, we only have three ways. We only have three ways to motivate any animal on this planet. Food, affection, and sex drive. And we can't do anything with sex drive in animals. It leaves me food and affection. That's it. That's how you motivate animals. Look, I don't know about you guys, but you go out and you go to work and you earn a paycheck because you need to buy food. <laughs> you need to have a home, you need to have shelter, you need to have safety. You need these things and in order to do that, you have to work for it, right? We all need food to survive. Every animal on this planet needs food to survive. The difference is every animal has a different job. Human job is different from a dog's job, different from a bird's job. And you know, I got news for you, my job is different than your job. How I earn money and earn food is different than other people. And, you know, that's that's the way it works. That's that's the magic of it all is that every animal on this planet needs to survive and we all have to earn our food, earn our keep. And in reality, that's that's how we motivate animals. That's how I get motivated. Um, look, I, there's, I know there's some people out there going, David, I love my job. I have intrinsic value and I love what I do and I get it. That's wonderful. But if you stopped getting paid tomorrow, I doubt you'd keep showing up. <laughs> Just saying. Uh, so, you know, the magic to, to working with animals in movies, honestly, guys, it's food and affection. It is. Now, there is something to be said 
about the power and the strength of the relationship that you have with an animal that you're working with, that a trainer has with an animal that they're working with. That relationship is very important. As, as I've talked about before, even with training dogs, it doesn't matter. Training any animal, there is this level of trust that must be earned. And every animal communicates and earns that trust in a different way, right? And as, as we've discussed, coming down to the animal's level and understanding how they operate, how they think, how they view the world, their perspective, and what motivates them, food, affection, that's how we train animals. That's how we work cohesively with an animal. And, and that's how we build trust in a relationship with an animal, right? So, you know, we, we, we've talked, I want to talk about a few different animals today, you know, and, and, and the, here's the question. It's okay. So David, we all know, I mean, everybody knows it. Everybody knows we use food and affection to train animals. You do it with your dog. Of course. Uh, and there's nothing wrong with that. That's, that's, that's awesome. That's what you should do. But how do we actually train the animals? What do we do to get these animals and TV and film to, to perform all these amazing things and do all these amazing uh, behaviors, right? And I want to talk about that a little in depth today. And I want to talk about a few different animals here, a few different species maybe, and and how I worked with them and how we motivate them and maybe some of the behaviors that I got to, to work on. And the first thing I want to, first, first animal I want to, oh, actually, you know what, before we even get into that, I... Before we start, actually, I want to say this. <laughs> there we go. I want to say um, that there is there is a little movie magic I might let you in on. Maybe some secrets I'm going to reveal. Nothing crazy. No ridiculous spoilers. But I'm going to reveal maybe a little bit of how we work with them and how we get behaviors to to happen. And that might take a little of the movie magic away. So I'm just kind of warning you of that. But it's nothing crazy, like I said. Um, so the next thing I want to say is when we talk about movie magic and working with animals, the real magic really, guys, is in the relationship and trust built between the trainer and the animal. I just want to reiterate that because it's really important, you know. When working with an animal on a movie set, when working with an animal uh, at an animal show, it's all about being able to build that relationship. I, I'm going to say it hopefully 10 more times because that's what it truly is about. Look with your dogs at home. It's no different. If you want to train your dog successfully, you have to have a good relationship with them. And that trust sometimes takes time, sometimes takes <laughs> trials and tribulations in working with a rescue maybe, um, but, but it's well worth it in the end. And again, that trust, that relation, that's the most important part. So uh, I just want to throw that out there. So I wanted to talk about a few different animals today and that I got to work with at the show. And like I said, some of the behaviors. And the first first animal we're going to talk about is a bird. It's a macaw. And we had a lot of macaws at the show that I worked with, a lot of different birds. Uh, we had a few different bird species, macaws, Amazons, um, cockatoos. We had conures. So quite a few species, but a lot of macaws. And the macaws are just so majestic in their flight, aren't they? Like, ah, oh, if you've ever been to an animal show and you get to see a macaw fly in, it's just, it's breathtaking. And even more so if you can get a few different macaws flying over your head and go in every direction. And it's so cool to see them in their natural behaviors and in their natural flights. And uh, it's really neat. It's really neat. So I got to train a couple different flight behaviors with a macaw, and one of them in particular that I <laughs> that I want to talk about today, and I'm, I'm laughing because oh man, it it was it was a frustrating behavior to train only for the fact that we had never trained this behavior this particular behavior before, so it was sort of like a, a little bit of trial and error. <laughs> and the thing with animal training, guys, and I tell my clients, it's it's the same thing. I tell clients that are training their dogs, behavior and and success in training. 
it sometimes is only measured measured in inches, right? It, you get a little tiny bit of progress one day. It may be a couple days in a row, but then all of a sudden after a week or two, boom, you get a over a big hurdle and a huge amount of success. And then you go back to maybe an inch or two and it's this ebb and flow <laughs> of success and maybe a little bit of failure. And that's how we all learn. We all learn through failure, through success and failure. Um, and sometimes more than other, more success and more failure, and depending on, you know, sometimes one more than the other. <laughs> so anyway, that's why I'm kind of laughing because it, it was it was a frustrating but amazing experience to train this behavior. And what we were training was this big figure eight flight, big outdoor stadium that we performed the show in. And like I said, this particular flight pattern, we'd never trained. Now, an outdoor stadium brings in its own variables, guys, with with noises outside of the stadium you can't control, maybe just birds being out in the trees that, you know, might send your bird off in a different different direction and all these things you have to think about when training a bird. So um, we were training what you'd call an A to B, okay? I want the bird from go to, to go from one place to the other, and then we throw in the variable of this figure eight flight pattern in the middle of it. Okay, so an A to B is a very common um, training behavior, right? We, we, we worked with dogs, with pigs, with raccoons, and we train an A to B. Cats, one place to the next, one place to the next, A to B. Very simplistic. And here's, here's how we do it, okay? It's very, it's very simple, but it's, you have to be very consistent. You know, when you start training something like an A to B with a bird, I might start as simple as teaching a bird to step up on another person's hand and rewarding them for it, right? Cool. That's where it's going to begin. Then we can back 10 or 20 feet away and start teaching the bird a flight pattern to that person, right? Starts with just stepping up. Now we're going to, we're going to, we're going to take it to the next level and get the bird to fly 20 feet, reward it 30 feet, 40 feet, 50 feet. Before you know it, this bird easily knows how to do an A or A to B. Then we can actually take that behavior, put it out on set, put it out on stage, put it out in the movie set, right? It's no different if we're training for the movies, we're going to start slow, start backstage, start with no stimulus, no cameras, no madness, uh, and, and start slow and build it up. Then we're going to take that behavior and introduce it to the set, introduce it to the stage, but we're going to do it with maybe nobody there, right? We're just going to be on set, a nice empty set, or maybe we're going to be on stage with nobody watching, an empty stadium. Start teaching the bird the behavior on set, on stage, where they're supposed to be doing it, A to B, A to B, right? It takes a lot of patience and a lot of consistency and understanding how that animal thinks and being able to try to head off uh, any undesired behaviors or maybe something that might spook the bird or all these kind of things you try to think about to make it a cohesive and good experience for the animal, right? Um, so that's kind of the essence of an A to B. If it's a dog, same thing. If we're going to teach them one point to the other, I'm going to teach them to go from one person to the other, then back to that person, then back, so on and so forth. So they start learning, hey, I go over here, I get a reward. I go over here, I get a reward. Then we can start taking it to the stage. Same thing. Teach them where they're starting, teach them where they're ending. Okay. Um, it, it, it seems simplistic enough and it gets more complicated the more variables you add in, right? So, uh, getting back to the macaw, yeah, it's a tricky thing. So it took, you ready for how long it took to teach this figure eight behavior? Three months. Oh, three months for a 30 second flight behavior. <laughs> and, and I mean, that tells you the dedication, guys, the dedication of these professionals, of these animal trainers, of these people. Look, it's no different when they're on a movie set working with a bird. Sometimes they're going to spend days teaching a simple behavior. Sometimes it takes weeks. Sometimes it takes 
months, even longer than three months. Um, it's, it's crazy, you know, when you really think about the amount of effort, the amount of time and dedication, it's, it's amazing is what it is. Uh, so that's just a little, little kind of peek into how we start to training and working with a macaw and something like an A to B adding in this figure eight pattern. Now to, to kind of finish it up really quick with the A to B with the bird, I start at the ending place, right? So if we're going A to B, I start at B and then I'll back away 10 feet and teach the bird to fly to the end place. 20 feet, teach the bird to fly to the end place. 30 feet, so on and so forth, just like we talked about. And then I'll add the first turn of the figure eight into it, teaching the bird to take that turn and end at the, be, end, at the end locate. So on and so forth until we have a full figure eight pattern. And I tell you guys, when you've worked... <laughs> When you've worked that hard and you've put that much time and dedication and love into that, into working with that animal, and then you see that behavior, and I look, I, I'm getting chills right now, and honestly, like a, <laughs> a little choked up because I'll never forget the first time we put that behavior in show, and the bird did it beautifully and correctly, and the crowd was was ooing, and I mean, you could see the amazement on their face. And the bird, as she's coming down to land, is squawking so happily because she, like, she knew she did it right. And she came down and landed, and she was so thrilled. She started flapping her wings when she landed on my arm. She was so happy. And it was such a cool feeling. You know, three months of work come to fruition, and to see the awe in everybody's face was just, to me, it's priceless. It's it's It was a big reason why I loved that job. Um, and it's no different one with, with dogs now, you know, I, I get that same feeling when you see a, a changed behavior in a dog and the, the look on the face of the owner, you know? Um, so anyway, really cool feeling to be able to, to make that happen. So what about a different kind of bird? What about the next, you know, the next, next animal I want to talk to you about is a bird of prey. Now birds of prey, we're talking hawks, owls, um, vultures, you know, those, those are the kind of birds of prey I really thoroughly enjoyed working with. Um, and, uh, uh, there's one hawk in particular I loved and she was just phenomenal. And we did a simple A to B, simple A to B with the, with the hawks. Uh, vultures were an A to B too, just under a different context in the show. But, um, we had a hawk who flew down from the top of the stadium, right over everybody's head and would land on your glove on stage. And again, I will never forget the feeling. Look, I'll tell you a little story. When I was a little kid, I went to this particular animal show when I was a kid that I that I worked at as an adult. Um, I went there as a kid, and I I remember watching that hawk land on the glove and going, "Oh my gosh, I want to I want to do that." And then not only did I get to work with birds of prey, I got to have you know the same stage, same thing that hawk come down and land on my glove, and it was again. I will never forget the first time I walked out there and had that bird land on my glove. It was the coolest feeling in the world, you know? Uh, and I, I just, I really enjoyed working with them. So birds of prey. So let's talk about that. That's different, right? We have a different motivation going on. Different motivation because a macaw is not a predator, right? They're not. They're not predators. But a hawk... An owl, those those are predators. Now, a vulture, it's scavenger. Uh, look, some vultures do hunt live prey. Though. We're not getting into this distinction today. So we're going to talk more about like birds of prey, like like hawks, eagles, owls, okay? Um, and they're a predator. They're a predator by nature. So obviously, we're baiting them with a the different type of food. <laughs> uh, we've, we've got a little bit of mouse going on in my glove there. Yes, I know. Not for the squirmish guys. We've got a little piece of mouse in my glove. 
Um, and interestingly enough, when you see hawks in, in, in birds of prey used in movies, I think it's awesome. But every time guys, there's a piece of mouse involved. <laughs> there's a piece of baby chick involved, believe it or not. There's some form of food involved to reinforce and strengthen and reward that behavior, you know? Um, but I had this one hawk in particular, just again, really, you know, not, not to go off a little bit, but I formed a great relationship with her. And I loved, <laughs> loved working with this bird, guys. I can't even tell you. Um, I'd put her on my glove and I, I could actually snuggle up on this bird and love on her. And I just, I, I loved working with her. And she, she was just a special, is a special bird. She's still around. Uh, I don't work with her anymore, obviously. But uh, one time, you know, look, I'll tell you a little quick story. It had been, I think, about a year and a half after I had left the show. And I came back in to visit and say hi to everybody and see some of the animals I got to work with. And I came around the corner and this bird hadn't seen me in, I mean, almost a year and a half. And she started chirping little baby chirps at me, you know, because she was so excited to see me. And I went right over to her and she stepped right up for me and was chirping. I even, you know, maybe I can find that video. I'll see if I can find the video. I can't guarantee that I can. I have that video clip of her actually on my glove chirping because it was just, it was adorable and awesome. Um, but that speaks, and I'm, look, that speaks volume to the relationship and time I put in with her. You know, I truly believe in building that relationship and that trust as the foundational building block for working with your animals. Um, and, and that bird lucky, luckily, you know, I mean, she, she trusted me a lot, not luckily it was, that was time and dedication. There was no luck in it. Uh, it was work and I loved working with her. Gosh, what a phenomenal bird. I miss her every day. All right. I'm going off on a tangent. Let's keep going here. Let's talk about dogs and working with dogs. So look, interesting thing before we get into talking about with dogs, the interesting thing about the show and working at an animal show is, again, all the prep work that goes into it. Every single one of those animals has to be individually trained backstage first. Then we bring them out on stage. Then we bring them out on stage maybe while we're loading in for a show. And then we try to put them in show. It's, it's, it's a process. And so next time you go to any kind of animal show, think about that. Think that every single one of those animals had to be individually trained and worked with. And it's amazing. It's incredible. And then not only every single one of those animals, we have to bait backstage and get the food ready and be able to, you know, have everything prepared and reward all the good behaviors and give them their food. And it's so much work, <laughs> so much work, so much time, and really quite an amazing, uh, come to, you know, it all comes together in such an amazing way. So, all right, so let's talk about dogs. Now, working with dogs in a production setting, a, a stage setting, it's very different, obviously, from working with a non-domesticated exotic animal, right? Dogs have a natural instinctual way, as we all know, to want to listen to us, want to pay attention to us, want to be in tune with us. So dogs, in a way, are easier to work with, I would say, um, in that way. Harder to work with because they are more in tune with us, <laughs> right? Uh, everybody at home knows that. Your dog knows when you're upset. Your dog knows when you've had a bad day. It's a, it's a, it's a double-edged sword. Um, but anyway, I loved working with dogs at the show because, again, they just they have this want to please you, want to listen to you. This And it makes that that bond and that working relationship just easy to develop. It really does. And we had a lot of dogs that worked at the animal show and a lot of different species, a lot of different variety of size and breeds and species, excuse me, breeds. <laughs> 
And it was really cool. And look, I'll tell you this, you know, I've talked about Fred before. You guys have heard about Fred and Fred was my uh, half lab, half St. Bernard who lived to the ripe old age of 13, amazingly enough. And Fred retired from working in the movie and, and entered in production training industry. And Fred was in a movie, Hotel for Dogs. He was in a few other things as well, but that's one that sticks out, Hotel for Dogs. You can see him in there. He was a younger, spryer pup in those days. <laughs> but really cool because he worked, he knew, he knew a lot of fun, amazing behaviors. He was such a friendly, happy, social dog. He got to meet so many people over the years. I mean, just so many people, so many children. He, it, it sounds corny, but it's so true. He brightened the lives of just so many people. He was such an amazing dog. And when I first started working with their, uh, at this facility, he was the first dog I saw. First dog I walked in and saw on day one. And I fell in love with him immediately. I don't know what it was. It was one of those things. And he's the first dog I worked with at the show, too. He's the first dog you go on stage with because he was so reliable and so amazing and happy. And uh, he, was, he was half lab and half St. Bernard. What more can you say? Um, but anyway, I loved working with him and it's cool to be able to go back and watch him in the movies. And, you know, when you work with a dog at a show like that, you get to teach him a bunch of fun tricks, fun behaviors, and the dogs get into it. They love it. They absolutely love it. It's amazing when you get to find that dog that you just click with and they just get so excited to do their routine and do their bits. And it's, it's awesome. Like, it's so cool. And look, just some of my favorite memories were being on stage when it's like Christmas time or even during the summer as hot and horrible <laughs> as it was working in an outdoor stage in Florida in the summer, all good. Um, anytime it was really busy and you had a full stadium, guys, and again, I get chills because it's it's something I enjoy doing. I loved, I mean, look, I started a podcast, right? I enjoy being on microphone and sharing something that I love and that I'm passionate about. And I'm passionate about animals and I'm passionate about sharing that with people because I think it's an important message to get out there that we can work with animals in a wonderfully cohesive way. And when I was on that stage and you had that stadium filled with people and your animals were just out there having a good time with you, doing their routines, everything was clicking. It was a cool, just incredible feeling. You know, you get those, you get chills just thinking about it because it brought me so much joy and happiness. And you could tell the, the, the happiness of the animals brought everybody in the crowd joy. And again, I know it kind of getting a little corny here. Um, but it really was an amazing time in my life and really helped shape me into the behavior specialist, the trainer that I am in, in, in the way I like to work with animals. Um, so, you know, I just wanted to share a little bit of that with you because at the end of the day, guys, there's really no magic in training. What it is, is it's, it's passion, it's dedication on the part of the trainers, it's creativity, it's being able to think outside the box and being able to communicate with your animal in a way that they understand that works well for both of you, that we can work on trying to focus on strengthening behaviors we like and making that stuff happen. So, um, it was just, you know, it was, it was an awesome time to be able to kind of peer into the secrets of, of, of some Hollywood training, if you will. And the reality is there is no secret. There is no secret. It's just like with anything. It's having knowledge. It's having dedication. It's having passion um, and being able to apply those in a way that works well for not only the trainer, but the animals as well. So next time you're watching TV, next time you're looking, you know, watching a movie and you see an animal do something awesome, just remember there's always food, affection, and a dedicated trainer involved to make that happen.
The answer to today's trivia question, what is the largest bird in the world? It's the common ostrich. Yes, they may be a flightless bird, but they still are the largest bird in the world. Next on Speak a Dogcast, it's the Breed of the Week. This week's Breed of the Week is the Alaskan Malamute. They are a member of the working group. Males come in around 85 pounds, with females coming in at 75 pounds. Loyal, strong, and yet playful, the Alaskan Malamute was designed with a very specific task in mind. The name says it all. They were originally bred as an Arctic sledding dog. They are heavy-boned, with large, powerful shoulders and a deep chest, and with their thick coat, they are made to take on some freezing temperatures with no issue. The Malamute has a ton of energy and drive. They're not going to do very well in apartments. Look, bare minimum, they need a large fenced yard, and oftentimes, even then, they will dig large holes going as far as digging themselves out of the yard. If not given enough stimulation and a proper job, they'll make one for themselves, no matter how destructive. However, if given enough stimulation, these dogs can be affectionate family members and good with kids if properly socialized. The Alaskan Malamute can be prone to a few health issues. As with a lot of larger breeds, they can be susceptible to hip and elbow dysplasia. Owners should also be aware of uh, hypothyroidism, von Willebrand's disease, and day blindness. The origin of the Alaska Malamute can be traced back some 4,000 years ago, where their ancestors are thought to have made the journey across the Bering Strait with Paleolithic hunters. Their original ancestors were wolf-dog hybrids, and these dogs were used for many tasks such as hunting seals, keeping polar bears at bay, and pulling heavy sledges with food and supplies. The name of the breed is derived from the name of the native tribes called the Malamute. After expeditions were sent to Alaska, more dogs were brought in and bred with the original Malamute line, and like many dog breeds, at the turn of the century, by the time we hit the 1900s, we saw these dogs heavily involved in World War I and World War II. Now, this led to a decline in the breed, but by the 1950s, the AKC opened up the stud book to include two other lines that contributed to a resurgence of the breed. The Imlut and the Hyman lines were added into the original Kotzboom. The AKC officially recognized the breed in 1935. Next on Speak a Dogcast, it's our listener Q&A. First question today comes from Nancy from Palm City, Florida. Nancy asks, how many dogs have you walked at once? Awesome question. Uh, pretty simple answer. It's about 21, if I remember correctly. 21 dogs. Uh, yeah, you know, <laughs> it's a lot. It's a lot. And you know, I, I sometimes get the whole, like, how do you do it? You know, how do you walk 21 dogs? Look, it starts with teaching each dog individually how to properly walk on a leash. It becomes a little more difficult if I have three or four dogs out there that don't know how to walk on a leash properly. And it can be done. It's not necessarily going to be simple at first. <laughs> but no, that's really the easiest way is I teach a lot of the dogs to to walk properly individually on a leash. And then you can start adding them into the pack and into the group. The nice thing is it's a pack of dogs. 
if they know really all know what to do, they all kind of tune into each other and hone into the walk. And it's, it's an awesome thing. It's an awesome feeling when all the dogs are really, really, you know, they've got their head down as I've talked about what a healthy walk looks like head down, trotting along and you have a whole pack of them doing it. So it's a lot of fun. Um, but you know, really you got to do it individually first and then you just adjust all the leashes to make sure all the lengths of the leashes are as short and loose as possible, right? Maybe I'm going to put dogs that are not the greatest walkers a little closer to me and the better walkers out on the outside of the pack. So, uh, things like that, that make it a little easier. But yeah, the answer to the question really is about uh, 21 dogs. Next question. This comes from Derek from Bradenton, Florida. Now, Derek says, my wife and I have a Chihuahua, or should I say my wife has a Chihuahua and I have misery. <laughs> this dog hates me and hates anybody that's not my wife. The dog will slightly tolerate our teenage kids, but he's very protective over my wife and will bark. He will growl and snap at anyone getting near her. Now, I know this behavior is really unhealthy, but my wife won't listen to me and won't listen to reason, and she thinks it's cute. What should I do? Derek, this is a tough one. I mean, really, it is. You know, it's a t it's a tough scenario. Look, I, I like to say maybe you should try to put it in a perspective of imagine if your Chihuahua was not a Chihuahua. Imagine if your Chihuahua was a ninety pound dog. I don't care what the breed is. Imagine it was a ninety pound dog and acting like this. Would your wife be okay with that? You know, would would she be accepting that behavior, or would it be a lot more dangerous? Because the thing is, mentally. Well, physically, we have two different sizes. Mentally, it's no different and it's unhealthy. And maybe that's a way and that's a perspective you can present it as because obviously that is an unhealthy thing and it's unsafe. I mean, I know it's a chihuahua, but God forbid it bites a small child. It's not a good situation and nobody should have to live in fear like that. You know, that's that's not a good way not fear. Not that you're fearful of a chihuahua. Uh, maybe you are and that's okay too. Um, I get it. Look, getting bit by a dog is not a fun thing. So it doesn't matter the size. Nobody wants that. And worse, like you said, you know this behavior is unhealthy. You know that dog is not in a good state of mind. And obviously that we would rather not be reinforcing that. So look, really the easiest way to solve it is you can try to try to present it, like I said, in a different perspective like that. If that doesn't work, then you need a third party to come in. You need a professional to come in and sit down and have a discussion with you guys because that that can sometimes really go a long way toward having someone that's not emotionally involved or, or not a family member, not a close friend, and a professional on top of that. More importantly, a professional they can come in and have, have a sit down with you guys and talk about it. Now, look, feel free to reach out to me through virtual training. We can have that talk over a Zoom call even um, because it's it's very important that you you get your dog under control and you have a better, you, know, you and your dog have a better quality of life. So I highly recommend the way you should go about this is by contacting a professional, get a trainer, get a behavior specialist in working with you guys. And I think that can go a long way towards solving this problem. Now, you're going to have to do some training. You're going to have to do some work to fix these kind of behaviors. Um, but it starts with understanding. It starts with changing your wife's perspective on what's going on here. And, and hopefully we can make her understand that this isn't acceptable. And it's better for everyone, including the dog, that we change those behaviors and we make the dog happier and healthier. <music> That'll wrap up the podcast today. Thank you so much for listening in. Don't forget to follow me on Instagram at speakadogcast. You can check out my other Instagram page at davidpaws, P-A-W-S. Send all those questions over to me, questions at speakadogcast.com. Have a wonderful week, and don't forget, get out there and walk your dog. Walk your dog.